Welcome to Politicus, the only podcast that discusses politics and public service from the Portuguese-American perspective. Here we discuss everything from federal policy, local issues, and U.S.-Portugal relations with the goal of driving more discussion and awareness of the issues affecting our nation, our community, and what we as Portuguese-Americans can do about it. And now, Politicus. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Politicus uh, as a podcast, but we're, we're actually going live on Facebook with this one. So welcome to those of us joining on Facebook as well. Uh, my name is Angela Samos, and I'm here with my esteemed co-host, Anish Borges. Hey, how are you? How are you, my most awesome chairperson <laughs> in the whole entire <laughs> universe and beyond? Right, right. Um, uh, we're really excited for today. It's a topic we've never, never touched on, Denise, but something that's very relevant in our social and political climate right now. Our guest today is Attorney, Attorney General of Rhode Island, Peter Noronha, or Noronha, I think is uh, the, the Portuguese pronunciation, if I did that correctly. Yes, you um, did. Proud of you. Thank you. So thank you so much, Attorney General uh, Noronha, for, for joining us today. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be on with you. So uh, before we jump into the meat of the discussion, can you just give us a little bit of your background and, you know, um, growing up and then how you became, you know, your path to becoming attorney general? So I grew up in a town, a small town in Rhode Island called Jamestown, which is connected uh, today by a bridge to Newport. But when I was growing up in my early years by a ferry system, which all of my relatives mostly worked on, including my father and grandfather. Now, the family history is, is that my great-grandfather came from the Azores at around 1900. You know, the family records aren't all that great, uh, but he came over then and um, settled originally in, a, in Portsmouth, Rhode Island, but came to Jamestown shortly thereafter. And my dad, uh, my grandfather came to Jamestown when he was three. My father was born there in 1929. He's still alive, God bless him, at, at 91. Um, and I was raised there as well, small town, 5,000 people. My great-grandfather was a fisherman, a commercial fisherman. My father and grandfather worked on the ferries that connected Jamestown to Newport. So it was really a Portuguese and Irish community growing up of working people. And uh, and so that's the environment in which I was raised. So I, I was the first person in my family to graduate from college, go to college and graduate from college and later to law school, went to Boston College undergraduate, Boston College Law School. When I graduated from law school, I, I lived for a time in Boston. I joined a very large Boston law firm uh, called Goodwin Proctor. Today, it has about 800 lawyers uh, worldwide. Then it had about 400. And really, it was an opportunity for me to, to learn uh, from some really top flight lawyers. I had some student loans that I needed to get paid off and couldn't quite do public service right away. But once I had that issue kind of taken care of and felt like I was ready to move on, um, I joined uh, the Rhode Island Attorney General's Office as a line assistant attorney general in 1996. In 2002, I became an assistant United States attorney, a federal prosecutor. In 2009, President Barack Obama appointed me as the United States attorney for the District of Rhode Island. You know, some of my former colleagues were very close to Belinda Haig out in the Bay Area, was one of my colleagues mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office. There were three U.S. attorneys uh, in um uh, four U.S. attorneys, excuse me, in California. Ben Wagner was one. Andre Barat was another, now a federal judge. So we had a lot of great colleagues out there. And then in, in 2018, after leaving as U.S. attorney, President Trump took office. I ran for and was elected the 74th attorney general for the state of Rhode Island and have served since January 1st of 2019. 
my wife and I, my wife's an internal uh, medicine physician. We have two children. One is in medical school himself, who just started in St. Louis, and the other is a undergraduate student at Brown University. So that's the background of, of oh. who I am and how I got here. That's amazing. Qu- quite a path. Um, so when we talk about law enforcement reform, it's obviously been a really hot topic lately. Tell us about your approach and your philosophy when it comes to law enforcement reform and yeah. maybe some of the initiatives that you have started in Rhode Island. Yeah. So so a lot of this goes back to my time as U.S. attorney. And look, when you're a line prosecutor, as I was, a state and federal prosecutor on the line, I mean, you're really focused on your caseload that's in front of you. And you don't really have an opportunity unless, unless frankly, you're, you're a little more um, maybe a little more engaged than I was at that point in my career to really get up to 50,000 feet and think about the, the larger implications over of what it is you were doing. And we really had the chance in the Obama administration, I think, in, in this country to begin thinking about some of those other things. And so what do I mean by that? So when I was an assistant United States attorney in the, in the Bush administration, our marching orders were to, saw, were to charge the most readily provable, most serious offense with every sentencing enhancement in every case, no matter the individual circumstances. So it didn't matter sort of the age of the defendant or what their criminal history was or the circumstances of the crime. You had to charge everything all the time. And so we weren't able to really tailor our charging decisions to the specific individual characteristics of each case. Look, it was an easy place for a prosecutor to be because you knew exactly what you had to do. You didn't have to make any choices. But I don't think that that does justice and neither did the president and neither did the attorneys general who I served. And so we we shifted to a, to a place of giving prosecutors discretion to tailor the charging decisions and the sentencing recommendations to better fit the circumstances of each case. And I think that leads to a better place for justice. So that's sort of part of it, rethinking how we handle individual cases, not think of them as one size fits all, but to really do an individualized assessment. But we also, we, we called it at the time the three-legged stool because there were two other significant pieces to criminal justice reform when I was in the Obama administration as U.S. attorney. One was prevention, which was to prevent crime in the first place and to divert people out of the criminal justice system. We frankly had more success here in my office now than we did then. And the other piece was reentry, so that when people are getting out of the prison, what role do prosecutors have? in making sure that people, when they get out of prison, get to a place where they're likely, less likely to go back into it. And that's a win-win for everybody. When somebody reoffends, you have to reincarcerate them many, many times. And that's a cost, it's an economic cost, it's a cost to society, there's potentially another victim, and so you have another victim uh, involved. So, so we really focused on those three areas. When I became attorney general, I was able to take some of those principles and really adopt them in ways that I could really, you know, now being, I don't really report to anyone other than the people of the state of Rhode Island. I had much more freedom to sort of craft what it was we were doing along the lines of, of what I thought was appropriate. So here in Rhode Island, for example, we brought that same charging discretion uh, to the office. So we're charging here. Uh, on average, 5,000 cases a year. So in every one of those cases, I want my folks that are making those charging decisions to think very carefully about what each case is. I don't want to undercharge, but I don't want to overcharge. But we're also working really hard at prevention. So we've established, uh, we had a diversion program here, uh, which was really hard to get into. And what a diversion program is, is basically if you're sort of a first-time offender or a young offender, um, it keeps you out of the criminal justice system by puts you on a different path. So basically, 
If you need to get a job, you get one. If you need to finish your education, you get one. If you need substance abuse counseling, you get it. If you need to pay restitution, you do it. And if you do all of those things and kind of, you know, you're on that knife's edge, but you can tip yourself back into sort of the right place, then your case is dismissed and you avoid getting a criminal record. Well, that was a that was a program that existed only internally in the office when I started, and we had very few people in it. So if you were a URI student and you sold a marijuana joint to another into another student at URI, you were a drug dealer and you couldn't get into our program. I think our program is exactly the kind of place where that student needs to be. You know, look, that's conduct that 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 shouldn't happen. It's not, you know, it's not going to change the state of our democracy. Um, that's a case that belongs uh, in our diversion program. So we really made that program more robust and expanded it. What we also did was we worked with the General Assembly to create a diversion court where those kinds of cases can not only get into a diversion program, but have court intervention. I think there's a lot to be gained by having a judge guiding these cases. And so that's a significant thing that we've done on, on sort of the prevention side. Really, the idea there is to keep as many people out of the criminal justice system as possible. And today, about 10% of our pending cases are in diversion. So I think that's a significant step forward for us. One quick question, if I may, um, uh, as kind of a follow-up to what you <clears throat> talked about your time at the U.S. Attorney's Office. If you look at it now, um, since you've left four years later, um, the direction is different, obviously, than what it was four years ago. And uh, with some uh, uh, criminal justice reform that's been done at the federal level, how do you look at it today versus four years ago from your perspective? Attorney yeah, General? Yeah, so so I, I think that that this administration, you know, if I'm being candid with you, and I look at the, sure. what the Justice Department has done over the last four years, I think, how do I put this? They have focused on what I believe the administration would call, um, you know, following the rule of law and, you know, going after violent crime. You know, I think U.S. attorney's offices, you know, I was a federal prosecutor for nearly 15 years. What the U.S. Attorney's offices should be focused on, what the Department of Justice should be focused on all the time are cases that cross state borders, that cross international borders, dealing with cartel-related or linked drug trafficking organizations that, that spread drugs throughout our country. They should be involved in cyber intrusions. They should be involved in high-stakes political corruption matters. I think where this, where this Department of Justice has gone, I think... It, they focus, I think, on the low-hanging fruit in many ways. Mm. You know, they, they've done cases that DAs and attorneys general, and in Rhode Island, we are effectively the DA. We don't have DAs here. So they've really done cases that you know this office can do, frankly, just as well. There are some cases we can't do as well. You know, If we were doing a wiretap in Rhode Island on a drug trafficking organization, as soon as that organization gets outside of Rhode Island, they're really beyond the scope of our ability to reach them. The U.S. Attorney's Office can reach those drug trafficking organizations much more easily. And I, I just think there's been a shift away from sort of what ought to be the core mission of the department to areas that uh, are, are frankly best left to state and local prosecutors. And I think part of that is, is because there has been this, this notion of, of trying to send this signal that we're focused on violent crime. And, and I, just, I just think that's missing, missing the true mission of the department in a lot of from where I from where I sat and and where I experienced that again as a line assistant, you know, back in the in the early two thousands. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about because uh, when you talk about violent crime and you know at the local level, can you talk about um, 
police departments themselves and any what role your office plays in whether it's setting standards or helping them figure out training. And there's a lot of follow questions to that, but you know, the, the, the defund the police movement, I I think has been very, not, I think it has been very prominent, but I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what that means. And so if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, police departments themselves, that would be. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're, look, I think community trust is always really important for prosecutors to build and police departments to build. And, and that's not always easy, even under the best of circumstances. And, and we are not in this day and time in the best, in under the best of circumstances. So we, you know, before COVID, we were doing a lot of work in this office to reach the community through something which are called expungement clinics. So under Rhode Island law, you're entitled to getting your record expunged if you meet certain criteria. You're entitled to it under the law. The problem is people of color, people who are poor, don't often know whether they're eligible or not because you've got to get your record and then you got to analyze your record. Those rules are fairly complex. So we did three expungement clinics back in last winter and we've now moved them online to help people get those answers. And we've had, a, a, you know, the, astoundingly, the number of people who are eligible who come to us is over 50%. So if you think about that for a minute, they're entitled to expungement. They don't know how to get it. Mm. If they do get it, it puts them for purpose of employment in a very different place than they would be if they can't get it expunged. I mentioned that because that's one means by which we build community trust. You know, that's more important today than ever. So, yeah. so how do we as prosecutors uh, here in Rhode Island try to impact and build community trust? You know, part of that is to make sure that the public knows that in those instances, and they're the rare instance, on balance, they are the rare instance, but in those instances where a police officer steps over the line and does not follow their training and commits an act that could be a criminal offense, that the public has to understand and be confident that we're going to be able to step in and do a review of, of that conduct. And, and we took steps in June of this year. Uh, we implemented what's called our use of force protocol whereby whenever a police officer uh, is involved in, uh, uses deadly force. Now that deadly force could be justified, but whenever they use deadly force, or whenever they use force that results in serious bodily injury, or whenever they are alleged to have used excessive force, even if that's only a misdemeanor, then my office will step into that case, investigate it along with the police department and with the Rhode Island State Police to bring an independent set of eyes to that investigation. And the whole point of that exercise is, is so that the involved police department isn't seen and viewed as investigating itself. It's to bring another set of eyes to it. Now that puts, <laughs> puts me in my office sometimes in a very delicate place, right? The community wants you to go to a certain place. Um, you know, certainly those uh, you know, police departments or police unions may think you're going too far. Our goal uh, is, and I'm confident we do this, is to get it right and to bring our experience and judgment to bear on getting it right. But, you know, I wish these cases were often, uh, were clear, were as, I wish these cases in every instance were, as, were incredibly clear as to what the right result should be early on, but sometimes it just takes time to get there. And in today's day and age, you know, the public's patience is, is not real high. So we're constantly balancing those two things, getting it right, but getting it, getting it done fast. The uh, record expungement that you talked about, is that kind of unique to Rhode Island or is it, uh, the, is it a movement that is uh, national in any way, shape or form? Because that's such a unique program. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that there are other instances of doing it the way yeah. we've done it here in Rhode Island. I mean, you know, we, 
we really enjoy doing that. You know, the, basically how it worked is we did it in the evening because people can't come in during the day. They have jobs. Mm-hmm. And so we did it at a, at, a, uh, at a community college in Newport, not far from where I live. We did it at uh, a nonprofit in Providence, and we did it in our community office. We have a community office in sort of an urban, ur, you know, a really urbanized area of Providence. Uh, and so about took about 17 or 18 of my employees to, to run them. And the way it worked was basically th- this. You would come in and give your name and give your social security number so we could run your record. And then so our Bureau of Criminal Investigation, which maintains the database of records, would run the record. And then one of our prosecutors would go over it and see which charges could be expunged, all of them, some of them, perhaps none of them, depending on whether the standards fit. And then would sit with the person and walk them through it. If they were eligible, we'd have them fill out the necessary court paperwork, get it notarized. It's hard for people to find a notary sometimes. And then tell them exactly where to go with that paperwork to get it done. And then when they got to court, of course, we're on the other side and we could help that help that happen. You know, we were, I like to think we're really helping people there. Uh, and, and, and look, if, you know, some of the faces I would see, you know, a mother with a child who was eligible, um, you know, that that's really meaningful for that mother and the child. I mean, she's able potentially to get a better job based on now having a clean record that she's entitled to have and just didn't know right. how to that. So part of it, I think, is doing good work, which is why we're in public service in the first place. But I hope it gives the community insight into who we are as people and as prosecutors that they don't see otherwise. You know, they typically only see us at the other end of a defense table. Mm-hmm. So it's a different way of them seeing us and hopefully builds trust. And it also lets our prosecutors see defendants as people and not just as defendants. And they think about the impact of the sentencing recommendations they're making when they're in court. So when you're recommending, just so to, get, to put this in perspective, when somebody in Rhode Island gets a 10-year suspended sentence at age 18 on a felony offense, okay, and never commits another crime, they can't get that expunged for 20 years. Oh, wow. So it's not until you're 38 that you can get that expunged. So, so when we're making our recommendations, there may be cases where a 10-year suspended sentence is entirely appropriate. But if it's longer than necessary, it has a real impact on people. And look, I talked to that young man who had one offense. I think he'd received stolen goods at 18, got a 10-year suspended sentence, had never committed another offense, mm-hmm. you know, wanted to work with his uncle and brother uh, at the state prison as a correctional officer, and, and just had to wait another year to be able to apply for and presumably get that job. So the sentencings that we recommend have an impact Look, sometimes long sentences are warranted and necessary, but it gives our prosecutors a chance to see the real life impacts of what we're doing. And if that makes them more thoughtful, that's consistent with what we talked about at the beginning of our conversation. So this podcast is all about the Portuguese perspective on things, right? And so Rhode Island having the largest percentage, uh, not not in number, but the largest percentage of Portuguese uh, population of all of all 50 states, I imagine there's a, there's a number of Portuguese police officers, there may be some Portuguese in your office. Um, would you say that there's anything, uh, I, I guess, do, do Portuguese offer a certain I don't know, style, does, does the, the role of the community come into play? What have you seen, you know, with the community there that might be specific to the Portuguese? 
Yeah, look, I mean, I think if there's one thing I take from my Portuguese background, and I would see this when I was in private practice, and I'd come down from Boston, and I'd, you know, I'd go to a, to a courthouse in Brockton, and I'd go to the courthouse in Fall River, and you knew that the people who were maintaining that courthouse were Portuguese. And that, that, that historic courthouse in Fall River, I think it's no longer being used as a courthouse, it's back in the, in the early 90s, was pristine. It was beautiful. It was well cared for. You know, to me, what, what being Portuguese has always meant, and, and what my grandfather and father really instilled in me, whether directly or indirectly, just, just by me observing them was how hard they worked and how committed they were to getting it right. Uh, and how, and frankly, their integrity, you know, both my father and grandfather had just, you know, had just such unassailable integrity. And I think that's a theme that you see through the Portuguese community and you see it here in the office and you see it amongst police officers that, that there is tremendous, there's attention to detail there is an effort to get it right. And, and so I do see that as I, as I, as I interface with the Portuguese community, um, you know, in, in the state, we have a Portuguese judge uh, on the Superior Court who was one of my former colleagues, uh, Judge Matos, um, got on the Superior Court, I would, boy, time goes by probably maybe now almost a decade. He's just been a terrific a terrific judge, uh, you know, not just not just uh, as a Portuguese, as a member of the Portuguese community, you know, but just as a judge generally. But how great is it to see, you know, sort of a leading member of our Portuguese community on the bench in Rhode Island, setting such a standard of integrity and and, and good thinking and and uh, judicial excellence? I think it's just really been great. You know, you talking about the Portuguese community because you said that you were the first in your family to graduate from college and. Uh, you know, there's still a lot of young uh, Portuguese Americans that are just going into college now that their parents were immigrants, those who came, mm -hmm. you know, at a much later time, that second wave of immigration that you're familiar with that came, you know, in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and some of them, uh, you know, their grandparents immigrated, but their parents weren't able to go to college for many reasons. And so what would you as a kind of a, a little bit of advice or a little bit of, of, uh, of a, um, uh, a way to uh, make give a, some, some, some good pointers to those young people who are just going to college, whose uh, grandfather or great-grandparents were immigrants, but their parents did not have a chance to go to college, and they're the first in their family to experience the same thing that you experienced uh, a few years ago, and now to look at into getting into the professional uh, world. Any, any bits of advice that you would give to, uh, and, um, and I, I go through that as a, as someone who teaches uh, uh, that students, um, you know, sometimes get into college and they have, of course, you know, lots of ideas and lots of idealism. Uh, and then the real world sets in, you know, with college uh, uh, as far as now today with the pandemic, but even before that with college debt and everything else that you said, that's one of the reasons why you went, of course, to the private end. And so um, sometimes students get uh, distracted and also discouraged. You know, is it really worth it? all that I'm doing, you know, for this to be the first in my family to go to college. Uh, a little bit of advice to these young people would be great. We'd appreciate it. Yeah, you know, I think it's hard. You know, it's hard because, you you know, you, you look to your parents for such guidance and support. And, you know, my, my children, you know, have, have one's graduated from college and, and, and one is still still there. And I know they talk to my, me and my wife a lot about sort of, you know, what courses to take and what major should I take and what should I do in my summers and, you know, if I'm going to apply to, like my son, as I mentioned, is in medical school, should I take a year off between now and med school? And that's a lot harder if you don't have a parent. Who, it, it, 
you know, it's, it's not the parents' fault, obviously. You, you, you only can have the experiences you've had. And, and my parents worked really hard and emphasized education and really encouraged me. And so I guess my words for them are this, which is, you know, there, there will be times, I suppose, when that will be obvious to you that the places to get answers aren't as easy for you as they are for others. But you can get those answers and you can get those answers by, you know, reaching out and talking to people. You know, I'm so impressed today. And I think, you know, email in a sense makes it easier than it was when, 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 you know, when we were younger, you know, I get emails all the time from students and I never, uh, there's a, there's a young man who's coming in today who just graduated from law school and is starting his career as a clerk for a judge and just wants to come in and talk to me about sort of my experiences. I think he's interested in public service at some point. I don't know this young man, but I'm happy to meet with him. You know, and I, and I, I can't think of anybody who has sort of reached sort of the position that I'm in or the positions that you folks are in that wouldn't sit down with a young person and talk to them about life choices or professional choices or college choices. And I wouldn't really encourage young people to just, just send somebody an email. You can send it out of the blue. This, this young man is I'm gonna meet with after, you know, later on today, send me his law review article from Boston College Law, from Boston College Law School where I went and said, look, I read your article, here's mine, I'd love to sit and talk to you. No one is, is not gonna meet with you. And even if the first person said no, the next 10 would say yes. So I would look to, you know, your high school teachers, if you're not in college yet, you know, find a professor, you know, they have office hours, they'd be happily sit with you. Find someone in a profession you're interested in, make phone calls. One of my sons is, in, is an engineering student. You know, he's interested in aeronautical engineering. I'm not sure how he did it, but he, he has identified people in that industry and has spoken to them about career options. I would really encourage young people to do that. And, and also this, don't feel limited don't feel limited by where you're starting from. You know, I've been very lucky, you know, to sort of end up where I've ended up. And, and, and I had no grand plan. I Trust me, I had no grand plan other than to go to college and try to graduate and go to law school and try to graduate and get a job and get those loans paid off. And then, and then just sort of work hard and, and, um, and that, and then sometimes, you know, life just gives you opportunities that you're just not expecting um, but there's, you know, anyone who tells you, I, I used to laugh, you know, people when I was young said, would say to me, you know, do you want to be a judge someday? And I don't think I'll ever be a judge. It's not really something I have a lot of interest in, but you can't really plan to be a judge. I, you know, no one, no one at 25 really plans to be a judge. Um, you know, work hard, ask lots of questions, do something you love, uh, and life will work out. And occasionally that bolt of lightning will hit. And as it did for me, frankly, and you'll get opportunities. Um, that you don't think you're going to get. When I became U.S. Attorney, and I'll, I'll stop here so you can ask another question, but when I was nominated by President Obama to be U.S. Attorney, one of my former colleagues at the U.S. Attorney's Office who'd retired and had a had a wry set of uh, wry set sense of humor, emailed me and said, "This is like you know, this is as shocking as the uh, as the colonists winning the American Revolution here." You know, <laughs> you know, I was you know, I was not a well known figure when I became U.S. Attorney, so it can happen to anybody. So I think it's fair to say any Portuguese American students out there in Rhode Island uh, who are looking at, um, you know, pursuing this line of work or just want to have a conversation, they can send you an email and absolutely set up a meeting. Absolutely. Um, we are coming up on the end, but I do want to just bring it back to our original topic briefly mm -hmm. um, and get your perspective on what are some of the misconceptions that people have when the words law enforcement reform are mentioned, or for example, defund the police, because yeah. my personal 
my personal opinion is that the word defund is a little extreme because I know that's not exactly what is meant by that movement. Um, again, my personal, <laughs> um, right. my personal view, but um, there are, it is a very confusing term and there's lots of different opinions. And so what do you think are some of the misconceptions that people have and what does a, a movement like that actually look like, whether it's a city police department or a statewide law enforcement for some criminal justice. Can you just talk a little bit yeah, about that perfect. and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, sure. Look, I, I think that, um, you know, that's a conversation we're having here in Providence and it's a conversation we're having vocally and loudly. And I think it's great that we're having it both having it and having it vocally and loudly. What, what defund the police means to me, what it ought to mean to me is you can't, you can't not invest in police departments. I really think, for example, that body cameras will really make policing more transparent and more credible. I just think it will. We'll know exactly what happened. We won't, won't, you know, credibility won't be an issue. But we can't get body cameras on every police officer in the state unless we invest in police. Providence has them. Newport has them. And our other 37 cities and towns, including the state police, do not. So we can't defund police and, and, and have the tools we need to make policing better. Cameras is one aspect of that. Training is another. I do think, though, that we need to invest in other areas. We, what we don't do in the criminal justice system very well is invest in the things that will make policing better and make uh, crime go down in a lot of ways. I think if we invested in probation and parole, we would have a much greater impact on reducing crime. If we're not actively working with people on the back end of the criminal justice system, meaning when they come out of prison to get back into the workforce, if we're not working with them at that point, we are not gonna get good results and we don't invest enough there. And I'm, I'm, I'm gonna give a very quick example. Federal system, 83% of, of, when I was a US attorney, 83% of people who were employable, meaning they did not have a significant physical or mental health uh, disability that would prevent them from working, 83% were back in the workforce within weeks of getting out of federal prison where they had served on average longer sentences for more serious crimes than state prisoners. State prisoners getting out of the state prison were at about 43% employed after getting out. What's the difference? The difference is this, the difference is this, Federal probation officers are carrying 25 to 30 cases per person. The state system, they're carrying well over 200, maybe over 300. If you can't, if we don't invest in probation and parole to help get these people getting out of prison back into society, we're going to bear all of those costs. As I mentioned earlier, another victim, which is a problem, back to prison, which is a cost, and we're losing them as, as human capital, right? People can get out of prison, turn it around, do great things, but they're not going to be able to do that alone, and particularly not in today's environment. Uh, this per, well well said, and I couldn't agree more. And I, I think it's. Um, I also wanted to say that I, I fully agree with um, when you talked about uh, discretion and having discretionary power when when sentencing, and and because every case is is different, right? And I think that can be applied to lots of different issues, even let's say immigration, right? Um, which is a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, Denise, I don't know if you had another follow-up question to that. I just, I, I don't want to abuse your time, uh, Attorney General, uh, but um, the dialogue between the states and the federal government uh, right now, uh, how do you see it uh, at, at the Attorney General's office uh, with, a, with the Department of Justice? How is that dialogue continuing? And how important is that dialogue independently of where and who's running the uh, Department of Justice with the different state Attorney Generals uh, throughout, throughout the country? How important is that dialogue with justice system between the state level and the national level? 
Yeah, look, it, it, it should be, it should be really, really close. You know, and I, and I have a good relationship with my counterpart, who's the U.S. attorney now, who actually, it's Rhode Island after all, it's small and everybody knows everybody. The current U.S. attorney was the appellate chief in this office when I took over. So we are, we are close, we've known each other a long time, we have a great relationship. The problem I think is at the national level, there isn't that same level of interest. You know, there is a committee that I actually serve on, I think because I was the U.S. attorney, that, um, uh, meets with the Attorney General of the United States, William Barr. We had one meeting last August and we haven't met since, even virtually. I think that's a tremendous mistake. I think that we need to be acting collectively in law enforcement. There are lots of cases that spill over state boundaries that implicate state and federal interests, just criminally. And then there are all the civil matters. You know, and that really, you know, we, we are almost unique as AGs go. Myself and the AG in Delaware and the AG in Alaska are really unique amongst AGs in that we have all of the civil jurisdiction and all of the felony criminal jurisdiction. Many, if not most, AGs don't have that. But step out of the criminal justice system for a minute. The, the civil matters, environmental matters, consumer matters, uh, trade matters, where AGs, uh, antitrust matters, big tech, cyber, where AGs are really there as the people's lawyer to protect the people of their states, we need to work closely with the federal government. And I don't feel personally like those lines of communication are open uh, and are being well used. I, I think we can certainly approve there. It's, it's, it's never easy because the federal, <laughs> the federal government, the mothership, um, has its own sort of way of doing business, but I don't think it's as strong as it could be. And I think there's definitely room for improvement. Well, and hopefully we will see it improve in the coming years. Um, and uh, Attorney General, this has been so informative and really um, insightful. I mean, I think we learned some things about what Rhode Island is doing that would probably be well served that other states would follow suit. And so um, this has been really great. Thank you so much for your time. I'm just going to have you give one last comment, and that would be anyone out there that's looking to get involved in your line of work or in criminal justice, law enforcement, any anything. Um, any last words of advice? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, to me, I've loved public service. You know, uh, I represented corporate clients, mostly a good one back, you know, in the early days of my career. But for the last, well, since 1996, 25 years, I've been able to represent the people of the state. I mean, I, I, when I was a trialer, I walked into the courtroom and I said, you know, I'm here on behalf of the people of the state of Rhode Island or on the people of the United States. That's a tremendous privilege. And I, and I can't commend public service enough, even if it's only for a portion of your career. I say this, we have some young interns who come in here every summer and, and, uh, and do work here in the office, law students mostly. And I say to them, look, I, you know, some of you may not be in a position to do public service either right away or, or for as long as I've done it. But if you can do it even for a short period of time, I think you'll get a great benefit from it and you will give back uh, to the public. I've loved it. Um, you know, I really try to encourage it amongst young people. I think, you know, today there's such a spirit of involvement among young people, which I think is terrific. Um, and, and look, I would encourage anybody who has any interest in, in Rhode Island or, for, or from, a, from afar even in interacting with me, that the number here is 274-401-274-4400. And just ask for my assistant and, and we'll be able to connect in some way. But yeah, I would just encourage people to, to stay active. And if you have an opportunity to do public service, I would do it. You'll, be, you'll take great satisfaction for it and the public will be really well served by you choosing to do that. 
Thank you. Those were inspiring words and um, and an inspiring career. I mean, I have to say, it's impressive and inspiring. It's inspiring to those of us, as myself, came from the Azores at the age of ten. So I can imagine your uh, your your ancestors how 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 proud they are of your achievements. Because uh, as a fellow Azorian uh, <laughs> and a fellow Portuguese, we're, we're I'm very and way here in California, very proud of your work and your inspiration uh, to young people. Thank you so much for such an inspiring story, and thank you for so much for your work. Thank you. Yes, and thank you so much for your time. And um, so we we hope that those who are listening in, whether it was on the podcast or on Facebook or even on YouTube, uh, that you found this conversation inspiring. Um, and again, uh, you know, Attorney General left his phone number right here for anybody to call and set up an appointment. So take advantage. But uh, thank you. Very thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Very much thank for your you. time, Attorney General. Thank you. Thank you. Right. thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Politicus, the official podcast of Palcus, the Portuguese-American Leadership Council of the United States. Palcus is the premier national organization representing the interests of the Portuguese-American community at large. To learn more about Palcus and how to become a member or to make a donation, visit www.palcus.org. To submit feedback or suggestions about the podcast, email us at palcus at palcus.org. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the show are not endorsed by Palcus. Politicus is made possible through the support of the Luso-American Development Foundation.